Well, good morning, Journey. Let, let me ask you a question this morning as we begin. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Do you, ha- do you have some perceived maybe imperfection or physical flaw that you would love just to get rid of or alter or change? Something that you wish you didn't have? Or maybe you could just like downplay and hide and ignore it completely? Maybe it's your height. Maybe you just wish you were taller and could dunk a basketball. Or maybe you were, wish you were shorter and wouldn't bump your head whenever you walk into certain places. Maybe you wish you were just a little more smarter and, and could do better on exams and tests and figure stuff out. Maybe you wish you had better hair or, or any hair, you know? <laughs> For me, I would have to say it would be my eyesight. I've been wearing glasses since I was in junior high. And I remember how it all unfolded. I was in math class, and because I don't like math, I always sat in the back. And there got to be a point where I couldn't see the board anymore. The numbers were getting blurry. So I told the teacher this, and he said, well, move up front. So I sat in the front row for a while, and the numbers were still blurry. So I went and told my mom, and she takes me to the optometrist, and I find out I need prescription glasses. And I remember the day when I, when I picked them out, a couple weeks later, I go back, and he's fitting them on my face, and the optometrist says, you know, um, if you wear these glasses, it will probably correct your vision within a couple of years. That's what he told me, and I remember that. As a, like a 14-year-old, I'm thinking, yes, I sure hope I don't have to wear glasses very long. So I figured two years, that's good. Well, now after 40-plus years of wearing glasses, I can resultly say that he was wrong, you know. <laughs> Just, it is what it is. I, I need glasses, you know. Now, m- most of us, maybe not all, but most of us have something about you that you would like to change, you know. Like I said, a, a perceived imperfection or flaw. Now, if we were to look at the Bible, you would see that it is full of imperfect people. And that's exactly the kind of people that God uses. A quick survey of the Bible, we, we, would, we would find Abraham, who was way too old in his eyes and most people's eyes to accomplish anything, but God used him. Then there was the prophet Elijah, who was suicidal at different points and wanted to die there was Joseph, as a young man, he was abused as a, as a boy. There was Job, who went bankrupt and lost everything. There was Gideon, who was afraid and coward and didn't want to be used by God. There was Samson, who was a womanizer. There was Rahab, who was a prostitute. And then there was Moses, and we'll learn more about him in just a moment. Today we begin a series of messages that's called Out of Darkness. We're going to take a walk through the book of Exodus over these next few weeks. And as we do, we're just going to see that Exodus is just epic history. I mean, there's fire, there's wind, there's water, there's hot desert sand. And this, this adventure takes place under the hot desert sun and just and in the shadows of the great pyramids of Egypt. And it's about two mighty nations going to battle. Egypt on the one hand and Israel on the other, led by two great men, Pharaoh, the enslaving villain, the ruler of Egypt, and Moses, the liberating hero and leader of Israel. 
And Exodus has an exciting plot. There's this dramatic escape by thousands of people from this abusive dictator, and almost every scene is of just an incredible masterpiece. I mean, there's a baby afloat in a river. There's a, a bush that burns but doesn't burn up. There's a river of blood. There's plagues. There's an angel of death. There's crossing through the Red Sea. And then this miracle food provided called manna, water that gushes from the rock. There's, there's pillars of fire. There's pillars of clouds. There's an idol in the form of a golden calf. And on and on it goes. Just an epic history of the people of Israel. So ultimately, Exodus, as a book, is about slavery and liberation. It's about sacrifice and worship. And it's about God's presence and God's mission for a people. Now, for the Jewish people, even to this day, it's a defining moment in their history. It's what really identified them and made them uh, um, as a separate people of God. And for believers, for Christians, the book of Exodus has been referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament because it's God's first great act of redemption in many ways. And as we're going to look at it, we're going to see that it's really this, our story. It reflects who we are. Because Exodus shows us that there is a God who saves, there is a God who delivers people from bondage. And because of that, it's so real and so relevant for today because we are going to encounter a God who frees us from the slavery of sin and brings us to a place of worship so as this series unfolds over the next few weeks we're going to see how we as believers fit into the story of Exodus that it's not not just some Old Testament book that has no relevance or place in our faith, but we're going to see our lives reflected in its pages. But we're also going to see how it ultimately finds its conclusion and completion in Jesus Christ. See, the conclusion of Exodus is, is not the end of chapter 40 of the book. It's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's Son. And because of that, this, this series is going to take us up to Easter Sunday the perfect conclusion to the book. So Exodus is this monumental book with 40 chapters in it, but with a very simple theme, simply that we are saved for God's glory. And it all starts when the Lord God calls this hesitant, unwilling, and imperfect man to carry out his plans, a man named Moses. And as, as his life unfolds, as we look at these pages today, we're going to see this, that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. Well, let me give you a little backstory for a few minutes as we kind of set the tone and set the stage for, for the entire book of Exodus. The setting as it begins in chapter 1 is slavery. The beginnings of the story, the beginning of the book, is all about slavery and oppression. Now, originally, um, as we, if you read in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel at that time was just a, a family group of Jacob with his extended family, and there was famine in the land that they were living. So the word on the street was that Egypt had food, plenty of it, so Jacob takes his family down to Egypt. Now, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, was already in Egypt, and that's a great story of how God used him. But his son, Joseph, rises in power in Egypt and is second in command 
second only to Pharaoh. And because of his position there in Egypt, food was stored up, food was provided. So when the rest of the family comes, they settle in the Nile River Delta region, this land called Goshen. And as they settle there, they find food. It's years of prosperity as things start out. They have a good relationship with the Pharaoh at the time, with the king, and they grew in numbers. But then later, there's a change of kings. There's a new Pharaoh on the throne, and oppression begins to set in. In fact, it says in, in verse 8 of chapter 1 that a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power. And then in verse 10, chapter 1 of Exodus, we read this. This is Pharaoh talking. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, with Israel, or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithon and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So not a good existence. Things started out good, but quickly went south. And when that newer, new pharaoh came, it was nothing but oppression. So they were experiencing slavery. Political slavery, economic slavery, social slavery, but even more importantly, a spiritual slavery. Because Egypt had a whole pantheon of their own gods, and because of that, Egypt was an, was an enemy to the God, the true God. And God wanted to deliver Israel out of that situation so that they can worship him and worship him alone. So this battle that takes place was not just between Pharaoh and Moses. It was, it was a spiritual battle between Egypt and Israel. Biblical scholar and, and commentator Tony Moretta, he writes this. He says, God's goal was more than simply getting his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. See, God desired more than just liberating Israel. He desired worshipers. He desired people after his own heart and his heart alone. And that meant removing idolatry from the hearts of Israel. And he did that through revealing himself as the one true God. So as the story progresses, the heat is turned up in the furnace of Egypt. And it progresses from just slave labor and, and ruthless slave masters and making brick and mortar under the Egyptian sun, progresses to murder of children. So the order comes down to the Hebrew midwives, and it says in chapter 1, verse 16, when you, the, uh, talking to the midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And then in verse 22 of Exodus 1, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy is to be thrown in, into the Nile, but let every girl live. 
So things go from bad to worse, from, from just the Hebrew, the midwives disposing of the babies to a general order that all of the boys, Hebrew boys, must be thrown into the Nile. But there's this glimmer. There's a glimmer in that first chapter of faith and a glimmer of hope. Because in verse 17, it says, the Hebrew wives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So that act of faith, that act of rebellion, really, against the pharaoh of Egypt, led to one particular Hebrew boy to find a new life in the household of Pharaoh himself. So enter the deliverer, Moses, who has just in this incredible story of, of upbringing and birth, and he is born to a Levite woman, to a, an, a Jewish woman, who kept him hidden for three months. And, he re and she realizes that, okay, we've hid him for three months. At this point, it's kind of hard to hide a three-month-old. So she kind of obeys the letter of the law, but fudges it a little bit. So instead of throwing her baby into the Nile, she, she does place him in the Nile, but happens to be in a basket, in, in a watertight, waterproof basket. So yes, the baby is in the Nile, but he's floating along in this basket. And it's interesting, if, if you're to read, read this chapter 2 of Exodus, the word for basket is the same word used for the ark that Noah used and built. So every Hebrew would have caught the similarity that, you know, the significance that of God's hand of grace was on Noah as a deliverer, bringing salvation. So it is on Moses as a deliverer. So imagine this scene, baby floating down one of the largest rivers in the world in a basket, you know, floating along. Well, I, I knew I was preaching on this text um, this week, so I, I found a documentary that I love, I love documentaries, found one on Prime Video about the Nile River. So I'm watch, watching this documentary about these guys that float down the entire Nile River, and like any good documentary, I learned something. And I learned that there's crocodiles in the Nile River. Didn't know that until I saw this, this, um, this documentary. But these are not just any crocodiles. They're the largest in the world. They, they get up to 16 feet in length, and they are literally some of the largest reptiles on the planet. And, I mean, people are eaten on a regular basis to this day by these crocodiles in the Nile River. And in the pantheon of Egyptian gods, one of their gods is represented by a crocodile, human body, crocodile head. So picture this little baby, three-month-old, floating along in this basket, you know, nice snack for crocodiles. Well, God keeps Moses as a three-month-old safe. He, in his sovereignty, he keeps him safe from crocodiles, from dehydration, st starvation, and drowning. And God cares for this little boy. So he's floating along in this basket, and he's discovered by, by a servant girl of Pharaoh's daughter. You know, the basket's stuck in the reeds. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe. One of the servants said, hey, there's a basket. There happens to be a, a Hebrew boy in there crying. So they bring the boy to Pharaoh's Pharaoh's daughter, and she raises him in her home, which is just incredible because God, God's deliverer, Moses, is raised up right under the nose of Pharaoh. 
And this daughter gives this baby the name Moses, which the name means to draw out, you know, thinking I drew him out of the water. Perfect name for the man that God would use to draw his people out of Egypt. So Moses is raised in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. That means he would have had an incredible education. You know, Egyptians at the time were just highly educated, highly developed civilization. You know, they were skilled in areas of mathematics and astronomy and engineering. I mean, their construction skills were amazing, and their stuff is still standing to this day. I mean, uh, archaeologists are still puzzled about how they actually built the pyramids and how it got done and how they can still be standing today. So Moses would have had that education. In fact, in the, in the book of New Testament book of Acts in chapter 7, it says that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. In other words, Moses probably had a Ph.D. in Egyptology. I mean, he, he knew it inside and out. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. But he goes from Pharaoh's house to failure to a very humbling time. Because as the story unfolds, he sees um, a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian. And Moses, he's got this, this passion wells up inside of him, and he kills the Egyptians in an attempt to, to help out this Hebrew. Well, word gets out. Word spreads that Moses has done that. Eventually, word gets back to Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh puts a price on Moses' head, so Moses has to flee, and he becomes a fugitive. And he flees to a foreign land. He settles in this place called Midian, which would be modern-day Saudi Arabia, way east of Egypt. Well, he's there long enough. He meets a woman. They get married. They have children. And he takes on a new profession. He becomes a shepherd. So he goes from Pharaoh's household to hanging out with smelly sheep in the middle of the desert. Quite a change going on in Moses' life. Well, that season as a shepherd, as well as his upbringing, was really a time of preparation. Because God never wastes an experience. He takes, he takes time to equip Moses. And by living and working in Midian and as a shepherd, he develops skills and hones his wilderness skills that help lead Israel out of their enslavement. So that brings us up to the point where Moses encounters God and Moses has his calling in life. So the calling is to to take God's people, lead God's people out of Egypt. And as a shepherd, Moses would have traveled around the region, and he comes to this region in the Sinai Peninsula around the Horeb Mountains. And as he's leading his flock of sheep around, he, he sees a bush that is burning but does not burn up. So Moses has spent a lot of time in the desert, in the wilderness. He thinks this is unusual. So he goes over to the bush, and he's checking it out, And God calls to him out of this fire and out of this bush. And here's what God says in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And at this point of the story, what Moses did is what many of us would do. 
Because as we look at this encounter with God and, and Moses' response, I think we can see ourselves in it as well. So in this calling, in the responses that, that Moses gives, you know, he has a lot of excuses. And I think as we go through them, you'd probably say, yeah, that's probably one I would use as well. So God gives him this incredible call. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And right away, Moses counters with excuse number one. And he says, basically, I'm nobody. You know, he says, who, who am I to, to carry out this task? You know, I, I don't have credentials to do so. Moses is probably responding, saying, God, have you seen my resume? You know, top of the list, murderer, fugitive. You know, I've been leading sheep for 40 years. That's who I am. And God's response says, I will be with you. You're not going to do it alone. I will be with you. And you know what? Jesus uses those same words in the Gospels when he's ready to depart his disciples. He says, I will be with you. Well, even though God just affirms his presence with Moses, that doesn't stop Moses. So he brings in excuse number two, and he says, well, what shall I say? I mean, he's like, you know, I don't, I don't have any content. I'm not, I don't know what to say. And then he goes on to say, I don't even know your name. So God reveals his name to Moses as the I am. In Hebrew, it's just four letters, Y-H-W-H. And in English, we add some vowels, so we call it Yahweh. But the name of I am was so revealed for, uh, revered for the, for the Jewish people that they wouldn't even pronounce it. They couldn't pronounce it. So it's kind of transliterated into our English Bible as Lord with capital letters. Well, the, the name I am is related to the idea, the verb to be. And I think really God is just saying that God is, I'm central, I have no beginning, I have no end, I am just God. He causes everything to be. So God is telling Moses with this second excuse that, you know what, I'm absolutely central to everything. Just trust me. And as we look at the Gospels, as we look at Jesus, Jesus uses these same words, I am, to describe himself. And when Jesus did it, it would have been the incredible mic drop moment of this is who I am. I am God. But again, Moses, he's resilient. He comes back with excuse number three. He says, not only am I nobody, not only I don't know what to say, but then he says, well, the leaders of Israel, they're not going to believe a guy like me. So God responds by giving him and showing him um, three signs of power that he has power over all creation, power over people, and power over nature itself. So as, as a shepherd, Moses would have a staff in his hand, you know, to use to defend himself, to defend the sheep, and kind of, you know, uh, herd the sheep around. So Mo, God tells Moses to throw the stick down, and as it does, it becomes a snake. And some scholars say that, that it was probably a cobra, which, would, which is the symbol of Pharaoh. So it becomes a snake, and God says, grab a snake, grab the snake by its tail. Now, I don't like snakes. That's one of my fears, just putting it out there. Don't want to touch them. And I definitely would never pick up a snake by its tail, especially something like a cobra, because it's going to come right around at you. Well, Moses does it, 
And as he does so, God just reveals his authority over creation because it come, be, returns back to being a staff. And then he says, take your hand, Moses, stick it inside your cloak, and, as he's, and now draw it out. He brings it out, and his, and his healthy hand is now leprous and white and, and has this disfiguring skin disease. God tells him to stick it back into, into his coat and take it out again, and he does it, and it's restored to a normal hand. And God is saying, see, I have power over health. I have power over life and the death of people. But his signs doesn't stop there. He says, now take some water from the Nile itself, the river that Egypt holds as, as divine. Take this water and pour it on the ground. And as he pours it, it turns to blood on the ground. And that really kind of foreshadows and points forward to the plagues that were to come. And how the blood of a lamb was essential for their deliverance, but it also foreshadows and points forward to the blood of Jesus, necessary and shed for our deliverance. Well, like I said, Moses is a resilient guy. He keeps coming back with excuse number four. And number four says, you know, I'm not a fluent speaker. I have no communication skills. Now, maybe it could have been a fear of speaking, you know, maybe he was a stutterer, maybe he just had some, you know, something that kept him from being able to talk publicly. So God comes back and says, Moses, I made your mouth. If I made your mouth and I made you, I can give you words to say. I will help you speak. And as we look forward to the Gospels, Jesus himself tells his disciples, don't worry about what you will say. I will tell you what to say. And then excuse number five is my favorite because when all else fails, <laughs> Moses just says, get somebody else to do it. And I love that. He's like, you can just sense the, he's exasperated. He's like gone through all the, well, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do that. And God's like, but, but here, you know, do this, do that. And finally he's like, I don't want to do it. You know, and God's, God says, all right, I'm going to give you Aaron, and Aaron's going to be your spokesman. You know, the point with every one of these excuses, with every one of those, God says, just look at me. Look at me. Moses is always going, but God, but God, but God. And God says, no, look at me. Focus on who I am, because I am the I am. See, every excuse that Moses gives is I-centered, me-centered. Look at me, my weaknesses, I'm nothing, I don't know how to talk, no one's going to trust me, I don't have credentials. And with every one of those excuses, God retorts and says, it's not about you anyway, it's about me. So Moses is going, I, 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 and God says, I am. Sounds a little bit like us, doesn't it? You know, at the risk of being vulnerable here a moment, th this really hits home. Because honestly, th there's some weeks where, where I sit down to, to write a message for Sunday, and I'm thinking, God, I've, I've got nothing. You know, 
I'm, I'm not an eloquent speaker. All these fears and doubts are ruminating through my mind, and I start doing the comparison game with all the other celebrity pastors that you can watch on YouTube now, and I think, well, you know, I can't speak like a Craig Groeschel or Francis Chan, or I'm not a teacher like John MacArthur, and all this stuff is going through my mind when, when it's Monday morning uh, and I have a sermon coming on Sunday. And then each week, God shows up with this reminder and says, Dave, it's not about you anyway. Just look at me. Keep your eyes on me. It's not about you, so just point other people to me. Well, that really drives home our calling that I want to point out today for all of us. You know, why us? Why would God call us? You know, why use imperfect people like me and like you? Well, first of all, there are only imperfect people. You know, we're it. I mean, we're, we're all that God has to choose from, you know? So if we don't do it, who will? So, and if he decided not to use imperfect people, uh, you know, he would have no one to choose from. So all of our perceived imperfections, all of our perceived flaws, they can't be used as an excuse to say no to God. God's going to call us. If we give our life over to him, if we surrender our life to him, God is going to call you to a higher purpose, something bigger than yourself. So put aside the excuses and let's step up to the plate. So why us? Well, we're all that there is. But second, imperfect people like us have to depend on him. I mean, we are called by a perfect God to a task that's way beyond ourselves. When we say yes to God, we discover how great he is. Because when we step into his calling and into our life, we realize that there's no way that I could do this on my own or by myself. And, and I love that there's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Jesus speaks to the Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders of the New Testament church, and Jesus just tells them that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I just love that reminder. Well, why use people like us? Well, when God uses imperfect people like us, thirdly, he gets the glory. Now, if God just used extraordinary, amazing people to accomplish amazing things, then we could sit back and say, well, yeah, of course they did it. They're this amazing person. They're this type A driven leader and, and they just would naturally accomplish stuff like that. But God uses us. He uses imperfect, ordinary, everyday people to accomplish extraordinary things so that he gets the glory. And when that happens, we realize that yeah, God showed up and what's happening is a God thing. It's not a Dave thing. It's not a me thing. It's a God thing. You know, Jesus chose imperfect, everyday, normal guys. And those normal, everyday guys went on to lead a movement that changed the world. The Apostle Paul, like I mentioned earlier, he, he wrote a couple letters to an early church in the city of Corinth. A couple letters, and in his first letter to Corinth, in the first chapter, listen to what he writes. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Journey, what, what can we leave, learn from Moses? What's our takeaway for today? Well, like I said earlier, God uses imperfect people like us to accomplish his perfect will. And God wants to use you today. Let me pray for you that you step into that role that God has called you to. Father, I want to thank you for just the example of the early life of Moses. How even though he had every excuse under the sun, Lord, you just reminded him that it's not about him, but it's about you. So Father, I pray that each of us here can focus our eyes on you, that when you call us, it's not about our skills, our ability, our talents, but Lord, you just call us to be faithful to you so that you can get the glory, so that we can point people to you. So Father, I thank you that you deem us worthy for that task, that you empower us to do so. And Lord, may we step into that today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Journey, would you stand and worship with us?